0: All right. Hello, everyone. Here we are for the parables of Jesus stories that stir the soul. And uh, I'm here with my dear friend, Austin Bailey, all the way from Winston-Salem, North Carolina, sitting in an office. Austin is a uh, wealth management advisor with some big company. He has a lot of titles, but most importantly, uh, he's just an all-around good guy, former golf partner, and uh, has a a real heart for the Lord and is super smart. And um, so every now and again, Austin will call me and be like, hey, uh, here's this thing that uh, I've been thinking about. And he'd give me one of those calls today, but I missed it because it was in staff meeting. Uh, but Austin, uh, glad you could sit in and we could talk about this for a few minutes. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and then tell us what you uh, left on the voicemail today because I thought we would mix it up a little bit tonight and do something different, so. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah, sure. So yeah, I, li- I like to uh, like to give Tommy a call. I miss him from being up here in North Carolina. So Florida, you, uh, you people are lucky down there. So I bug him every once in a while with people I've been listening to or sermons that have just turned over stories that I've accepted and didn't think there was anything new there. So I find new things all the time. And so I Thrown by Tommy, which a lot of them he's heard of, but other ones may be new to him as well. So, um, yeah, but I do do wealth management during the day and theology by night, as it were. And, yeah, um, yeah I just enjoy doing that.
0: And so you, uh, you're you married to the very, very amazing Renee Bailey and two children of your own.
1: Yes. Yeah. I couldn't be happier. My wife... Uh, not not even close to just my better half. She's my awesome half and makes me a better Definitely. person.
0: You improve the gene pool. Yeah.
1: Right. <laughs> I got yeah. two yeah, two girls.
0: Yeah. And so Austin has just been a thought partner and a friend for a while. And I thought I'd introduce you to him tonight because when he left this uh, voicemail, he leaves very detailed voicemails. Sometimes mine go about seven minutes whenever I call and respond. We should just save those. But um, give us... Give us the breakdown of what you're thinking about. And fair warning, uh, we have not talked about this uh, hardly at all in advance, right? So we're just riffing, which is kind of what you do. Um, I think a lot of times in the church, you want other people to give you answers. But the way that we like to do it is just to talk about all the angles and see what new questions we come up with, which always lead to better questions. And so uh, bring it in, man. Where are we? What are we What are we doing? You're talking about the 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 prodigal son parable, right? Which I've taught on that one before, but you threw something at me in the voicemail. It's kind of like, what?
1: Yeah, yeah. So fair fair disclosure here too. Some of this has been me listening to other podcasts of people doing this. So um, it was a new angle. Luke 15, we're pretty familiar. Lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. Uh, Lost sheep, you got somebody leaves the 99. The shepherd goes and finds the one. Lost coin, someone loses it, they rummage through the house, they happen to find it, they're ecstatic, they're overjoyed, they celebrate, etc. Lost son, no one's going out to find him. You do have a, you know, a rapturous moment when the father sees him coming home, but the father's not going out to look, no one else is going out to look, and so it just kind of begs the question, if a son is worth more than a coin or a sheep, why isn't someone going out to seek him? And that was a that was a real point of realization for me when thinking those contrasted next to each other. and you know biblical writers aren't writing chapter and verse like we digest them now, but um, you know, good exegetical method here. Let's just look at everything next to each other and see if we can draw some contrast and some similarities here. so.
0: So you threw in the a word there, exegetical method. That's a $12 word. What is that? Yeah.
1: Um, yeah, I'm, I've been detoxing from the theology for a while. So I'm trying to get that language. Yeah, uh, no, bring it on. Here,
0: what does it mean? We need better words.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, just some of the process of actually looking at the written form that we've been given. And what what is the uh, what is the actual form? the structure of the writings that we've been given so which would be different i would say than hermeneutics which is more of an interpretive process on that form we're just looking at the bare form of the exegesis so to speak instead of making interpretive things about that which i guess is what i'm doing when i'm saying compare and contrast i'm making an interpretive move so
0: yeah. so you could do exegesis on any type of uh, literature or writing not necessarily just the biblical text
1: that's right and as a complete dovetail like since we're just first flowing what, out what
0: we're here doing? we don't know what uh, we're
1: doing. you know a lot of times people will talk about oh the, the the biblical text has so many layers of meaning as if that were different than any other piece of literature but I would say if you're doing an exegetical process through any piece of literature through different seasons of different portions of your life, you're going to find different things. It doesn't mean that that text, whatever it is, history or literary or poetic is revelatory. It just means that you're looking with new eyes. You're looking from a new angle. So, you know, the biblical text is revelatory, but not because of that. It's revelatory because of how it came to us Mm -hmm. and the whole canonization and everything. But good. um, Yeah, our our hope, really, I guess, would just be to see it with new eyes here.
0: So you're bringing out something. You're saying there's a lost sheep, Luke chapter 15. Um, There's So who is he talking to here? Now, tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So the religious people are ticked off because tax collectors and sinners are drawing near to him. And so then Jesus starts telling them inside jokes about the kingdom of God, and we call them parables. And so either you're in on the joke or you're not in on the joke, but if you're listening right, maybe you'll get in on it. So he told them a parable, a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes missing, don't you leave it and go after and get it, right? And then he rejoices and then the lost coin, there's a woman who has 10 silver coins, she loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, search for it? So we've covered that on Wednesday nights before. Um, and then the parable of the, you know, you called it, did you call it the lost son?
1: Yeah, prodigal, I, right? Is What's that?
0: I, I like that. I like that better than the prodigal son. You probably know why.
1: <laughs> you, what, you don't like some of the language that's come into well, our...
0: I just wonder about the word prodigal when it comes to the son, right? And, and so you were telling about Kim, Tim Keller earlier. Yeah. the prodigal son prodigal doesn't mean lost right so Hell, yeah no help pull that out for me a little bit more yeah, there i think yeah. prodigal means like effusive over the top lavish well let's just do a google real quick right? yeah, yeah yeah, because okay. the way that tim breaks it down is i've conflated the two for sure yeah the well you i think used a better term let's see what the word prodigal means real quick and um oh every time you type the word prodigal you do Spending money or resources freely and recklessly, wastefully, extravagant. So he is prodigal. He is prodigal. But the problem is not that he's prodigal. The problem is like he's lost. That's the problem of the story, right? We should we
1: should rename this this section here. The lost son.
0: Yeah, and the dad is prodigal too. Do you need to get that?
1: No, I just I just hung up. I it wasn't the right person. So yeah. All right. So caller ID here.
0: We have a lost son and um, you said they went after the sheep. They went after the coin, but they don't go after the son.
1: Don't go after the son. Yeah. Why so that- um, another, another point on that, we can dive a little bit more into why isn't someone going after the son, which I think is a, is a good point, but also that there's not just one lost son here, there are two lost sons okay. and uh, lost in different ways um the gotcha. elder brother and the the elder brother and the younger brother and so why the elder brother is also lost kind of fits into why no one's seeking the younger brother and um Keller's Keller's point in podcast is you know that the reason that no one is seeking the younger son is because the elder brother is essentially not doing his job and going out to seek this this younger brother and why is that his job it's his job because after the father passes away, it is the eldest brother's responsibility to manage the state of affairs and make sure things are disseminated appropriately and held together for the family, for the family name. Much in a way that is not a part of our culture today, which is why it's a little bit foreign. Um, so he he should have been the one going to to get the the younger brother. Um, so he's lost in some respect because he is, for whatever reason, maybe he's just frustrated. The younger brother is not wanting to fulfill his responsibility as the elder brother. Um,
0: hmm. He
1: doesn't deserve any of this, anyways, if he's going to go off and be a prodigal, superfluous, and just waste all these resources. I shouldn't have to go and look after someone like that. I'm checking the boxes and doing all the right things here at home. I'll just manage this and he can go off and, you know, well, the father's so excited at the end because he really thinks he's dead. So I think the older brother's like, who really cares is he dead? He's wasted our family's uh, resources, assets, et cetera. So um, it seems like some sense of just commitment to the wind Uh, from the elder brother to the younger brother like I I don't really care he'd really given up uh, a real concern and, and love for this brother and you hear that when he comes back and he says you know this son of yours not my brother this son of yours like that attachment that close relationship is not something that compels him to action in this moment and you know if we're all honest we we can see those kind of messages and things and in, in our own life of religious pride when we see other people who we think are less deserving of God's grace than we are, because we're clearly better.
0: So unpack him for me psychologically. I know that you're a wealth management advisor, not a psychologist, but when you look at this guy, what do you see? How do you see him, right? So he's he's given up on him a little bit. You You mentioned religious pride. How else do you see this guy? How does he show up for you?
1: Yeah, so... Yeah, in fairness, a uh, parabolic statement here, you know, not an actual historical event. But, yeah, there's there's tons of ways that we could, in our journey with Christ, see ourselves through this kind of model. At least that's how I do it. And just thinking, um, you know, as an elder brother, uh, uh, maybe a type A personality of, hey, I've done what I've needed to do to receive things from God. It's more of a meritocracy, Uh, I get God's grace because it's merited to me. I've actually done things to earn that. Whereas obviously that's, that's not how anyone's relationship into the kingdom starts. But once you start to kind of allow, you know, God's grace to work in your heart, obedience flows from that, you, it would seem, and I've seen this in my own life, you get kind of comfortable with, oh, I'm just an obedient son. And you start to take pride in that. And wow, I'm, much better than these other people who don't know how to receive God's grace when you forget that it's a gift at the beginning anyway, and it continues to be a perpetual gift throughout. So um, that story brings that back up for me here in a, in a new way.
0: I think that you, when you, when we talk about pride, um, one of the things that I think I've seen in my own life and I've seen in other people is Pride gives, often gives way to a cynicism and to where you're, it's like you're the standard and everything else is slightly to the left or to the right of you, and then you, you're the one who sees everything so clearly. You see it so clearly that you can critique it, and part of the trouble with, with that mindset is it often critiques, but it doesn't put anything in its place which is really quite lazy in a lot of ways. Like cynicism, I I think a healthy skepticism is one thing to be able to look at situations and go, okay, that's not right, that's not right, we could do this. But a a healthy skepticism, we can even call that a a prophetic uh, insight into something, to be able to see things clearly in light of how they could be or should be. That puts something in its place. And one of the things that I see happening, especially in social media, And um, actually, in a lot of the spaces I've been in uh, in higher education, is it's very it has a very keen eye on being able to spot the problem, but it's not putting anything actionable in its place. And part of the way the elder brother shows up for me in this parable is he's he's not looking to he's not looking to like put any he's not creating the future. He's just looking at the situation as it is. He's looking at what's happened. And he's just griping about all of the ways that he's not been rewarded. And in instead of, as you said, fulfilling his role in the family to actually look after the estate, to actually look after the younger brother, to go and find him and figure out what's going on. The, the challenge to me is to see that something's amiss, to see that something's missing, to see that something's lost, to see that something's not right with your church or with your small group or with your job or with your marriage or with your kids or whatever it might be. And then to actually do the work to go after it and put something in its place and actually fulfill your own responsibility. Like to shoulder the load and the weight of your own responsibility.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's fair. And yeah, that's helpful in terms of, yeah, the the elder brother is perched back on his seat to your point and he's not he's fine to organize things about where he, he thinks they should fit his judge but he's not prepared to act in any way uh to intervene in this story in a in a meaningful way as you put it uh to put things in its place for sure. Yeah. Um
0: what else shows up for you any any other thoughts or ideas in this whole thing? I'm just I think one of the
1: things much for me you got, uh, I thought you had a lost coin, that you were yeah. just, uh, no, the uh, the elder brother is indignant when, you know, it's like, what, we're having a party, we're having a festival, having a feast, and, and essentially that that anger and, and those things could arise also from, hey, he's already spent his part of the estate, any party that we're having now is my estate that is now being spent on the son who doesn't deserve anything, it's like, oh, wow. The father's now spending what would be my inheritance on, you know, to welcome someone back who doesn't deserve to be here, that I don't want here, et cetera, et cetera. Wow. Um. And and that was a that was an eye-opening thing. Of uh, there's a there's a real cost to be let back in the family. The father brings the signet ring as a sign of business. Hey, you're in the family. You you're not going to be one of my hired servants. You're not going to pay me back incrementally until I die and you still probably haven't paid back all the things that I gave you because you can't buy it back. But there is a cost to be brought back in this family and the elder brother takes the cost and, Mm. um, you know, to the chagrin of the elder brother. But also that in, in this kind of narrative as well, using Jesus as the true elder brother that paid the cost for us, that went and looked for us and did what an elder brother should have done and went out and got us, brought us back at his expense and willingly did that, not begrudgingly. So uh, that's just so, a- but,
0: but why didn't the, I know from like an estate standpoint what you're saying, that it wasn't the father's responsibility but it kind of bothers me a little bit that the father in the story doesn't go looking for the son. I was, I was there with you too. Huh? I was there with you too. Or even say
1: like, hey, if it legitimately is not your responsibility in this culture, go tell the older brother to do it. Like, just say to him, Hey, if you're not going to do this, you're not getting your estate either. So like you choose, (laughs) you know, let let him decide.
0: Yeah. Well, and that's part of, I think when we get too technical with, okay, the father is in every way, like God, the father and the older brother is like a a lapsed version of, of what he could have been, you know, and, and who Jesus is as the elder brother and we are the lost son. Um, so, I mean, maybe we're the older brother, or maybe in the story, we're the father. You know, we can see ourselves in a lot of those things. To me, the, in, the intention and the posture of the father is one of readiness to receive. And doesn't he go running toward him? Do I remember that? He does. Yeah, he's, he's watching
1: apparently. And yeah, yeah, he runs. You know, it's just kind of breaking those stereotypical things for a patriarchal uh, society then. So,
0: yeah, he would not have run normally, it wouldn't have been becoming. Like, did they die early of heart disease? Like, where do you get your, <laughs> where do you, how do you exercise? What, uh, I, I think animals. they, you jumping <laughs> I just think they were never
1: sedentary. I like, I just think these uh, people were always really walking weird. around. But, and then I think you, you probably heard this, but you know, if you were caught running as a patriarch in that society, it was in, a sign that you were ill-prepared and that was, you know, bad on your reputation. Like, oh, really? Why are you having to run right now? Did you not expect this to be happening? And therefore you're just not a forward thinker, et cetera. So yeah. And that's maybe one. that's maybe that's contrived. I don't I don't know. So
0: I don't know. I mean, so much of this in understanding the parables is about uh history and about what's going on. You know, if if a if a thousand years from now somebody would um, you know, if the Googler's still around, Google up um us and you know they come across the words like uh, make america great again or something like that context helps right seeing that uh we're this is there's a presidential slogan or you know uh, keep america great that's so part of doing the work of understanding parables is knowing what's in the water during that time you know okay. so if the father's not running um it's because he's not supposed to run if he does run Man, that's just breaking all the stereotypes. Uh, right there. Well, that's good, man. Yeah. Anything else that you want to pull out in this?
1: No, man. Enjoy it. We should, we should probably make it make it uh, make this happen a little more. Let's do it. I'll
0: call you tonight. All right. Man. All right. <laughs> <Later>. <laughs>